everyone, this is a call to actions. I'm your host, Bobby Vaughn, and of course the founder of A Call to Actions uh, is with me, Kimberly Schultz. Hello. Yes, today we are on podcast number 67, and we're continuing our saga uh, with the vice president. Was He was just recently promoted from director of research at Government Accountability Institute to vice president. Now, he is the author of the new book, Controligarchs, which you can get at any bookstore or online. The book is called Controligarchs, Exposing the Billionaire Class, Their Secret Deals, and the Globalist Plot to Dominate Your Life. And we're on Chapter 3, or Episode 3, with Seamus Bruner. And here we go on Number 3, The Great Reset. I'm going to begin this with a quote by Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum founder, from July 2020. Quote, I don't know how, how it will play out in November 2020, but what we know is that we will end up with many more unemployed. So we will see definitively a lot of anger because this crisis will be with us until we really have found a remedy. So we have to prepare for a more angry world. I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. And that is a quote from Klaus Schwab. So again, Seamus Bruner, welcome to A Call to Actions. Hey, Bobby, Kimberly, it is great to be with you. I'm so excited to talk about this chapter today. It's my favorite chapter uh, on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. It's kind of shocking how few people have heard of uh, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. I know your listeners are probably... Uh, savvy, smart people who know what Davos is up to and have heard of Klaus Schwab and his great reset. But so many people don't really know what Klaus Schwab meant when he said we need to prepare for an angrier world. And we're starting to find out. I mean, if you look at the farmers uh, all across the world, they're pretty uh, ticked off. And that is all by design. Uh, and you're going to see more and more people getting angry as they lose their jobs. Uh, and it's really all because of ideas that are cooked up in Davos and by people like Klaus Schwab and uh, one of the, you know, a couple of his henchmen that we have in the book, Yuval Noah Harari and, um, you know, et cetera. So uh, why don't you fire away with some questions and we'll get into it. Oh, yeah. I think the Great Reset, when I first heard that, I, I knew something was quite afoot. And hearing that, it kind of made me think, of, well, is this the beginning of of the end? Are they trying to establish the beginning of a new world? And I think, you know, I have to, when it, when it is my opinion, I have to say it is my opinion because I don't have any quotes to back that up. Though these type of people, including Klaus Schwab, who they believe that they do run the world, they're essentially attempting to create a new world and with the Great Reset being the beginning. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we are in the... Well, they've been working on it for a long time, and maybe we just start at the beginning, uh, going back to when... Like, Well, you know, it, it's always good to tell the story of who Klaus Schwab is. But to answer your question, you're absolutely right. I mean, they've been working on the New World Order for many, many years. Uh, Henry Kissinger... Uh, is the godfather of the New World Order. He was Klaus Schwab's mentor. And so they've kind of abandoned the term New World Order. There's darn conspiracy theorists trying to come up with uh, theories of one world governments and billionaires pulling the strings behind the scene. Uh, they keep making all of these lovely terms like New World Order and Build Back Better and Great Reset toxic. And so that forces people like Klaus Schwab or Henry Kissinger before him to rebrand, come up with something new. Um, but there's all kinds of terms for what they're, they're getting at here. I mean, the newest terms are uh, Agenda 2030 or the 2030 Agenda, um, before in the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, before that, it was the Millennium Development Goals. And it was the, uh, you know, Agenda 21, but all those conspiracy theorists uh, made Agenda 21 sound toxic. And that was 21 for 21st uh, century. 
Um, and so every 10 years or so, maybe 20 years, uh, you have to come up with a new term. But going back to the beginning where all of this really starts, and by the way, all of these terms, New World Order, uh, Agenda 2030, etc., those mean world government, one world totalitarian government. They, of course, they can't say that they want a one world totalitarian government where democracy goes out the window and it's more or less like the EU where it's all of these uh, blessed billionaires and bureaucrats deciding everything for everybody. But that's exactly what they want. And uh, Klaus Schwab calls it global governance. Um, but when he says global governance, they mean one world totalitarian government where the voters, there are no voters. You don't get to decide. They get to decide what happens in your life. And so that is what this is all really about. And they've got all kinds of ways of bringing about this one world government. Uh, and, and, you know, we can we can start at the beginning or wherever you want. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'd say let's. I have one question, and then we can go back to where wherever you choose uh, to go. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind was <clears throat> artificial intelligence. It's really became a a household name, a household term. Really, even uh, even my mother in law uses the phrase artificial intelligence nowadays. So, I think it would be. Uh, fair to make the claim that uh, an AI or a pro the progression of an artificial general intelligence may, uh, probably could be part of their great reset. Would that be f fair to claim? Um, and, and if so, uh, are there any examples? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, AI, and, and I predict, here's a prediction, you can check it right down the line. I predict AI is going to become a toxic term, just like the New World Order has, just like Great Reset and even Build Back Better has. Once the people wake up, and this is good news, guys, there's not all bad news, there's good news, is we can win this thing, um, but you, we've got to keep exposing these plans, um, because when we expose the plans, they have to go back to the drawing board and, and, and you know get new uh, PR reps to focus test new terms and you know it's a small fleeting victory but if we keep beating them back we will win so artificial intelligence or agi artificial general intelligence uh you even see companies like amazon who's huge in ai uh they're going to start using terms like analytics as people realize that what ai equals is the destruction of the economy for most uh of course these guys in silicon valley and in davos they're going to get much richer but to your question about uh is ai part of the great reset it absolutely is uh it's it's two parts of the great reset actually. So Klaus Schwab, in that quote that you read, he says, I see the need for a great reset. And he goes on, and I've got the full quote in the book. He goes on to say, what does a great reset mean? It means we will build back better in a greener. So that's one part of the great, I call them pillars of the great reset. So one pillar of the great reset is building back in a greener way. And that means, you know, EV, everything, all sorts of, uh, quote unquote, green technology. Um, which is really patented and controlled technology. I mean, we, we, we'll talk about that in the next episode, actually, is how the, the green revolution is a, really a power grab um, and where they're, they're seizing control of the entire energy sector. But the other pillar, there's three others, uh, another pillar of the Great Reset is stakeholder capitalism. We can talk about that a little later in this episode. Um, but the third and fourth pillars, one, the digitalization of everything. And I, you know, it's, it, I thought he meant digitization. Apparently there's two words, digitize and digitalize. Um, Minimal difference, uh, but it is a distinction. He says, Klaus Schwab says, we need to digitalize everything. And that would be education. That would be currency. That would be identity. Everything needs to be digitalized um, because of this very convenient virus that popped up out of nowhere and locked everybody down in their city. So kids had to go home and learn. And so give them a laptop. And uh, these laptops come preloaded with social emotional learning and, and AI undergirds all of this kind of stuff. They want, they want the, uh, you know, the, the artificial intelligence to be teaching your kids how to be more woke or something like that. But the other part, and we can get into the digitalization of everything from currencies to identities to education and all of that. The other part is what I think you're getting at here, which is the fourth industrial revolution for IR as it's abbreviated. But the fourth industrial re revolution is even creepier than digitalizing everything from your currency to your identity, to your education. The fourth industrial revolution 
question refers to this internet of things this now klaus schwab also calls it an internet of things you may not have known that that iot was actually first dropped at a world economic forum event in the 90s so they've been working on this for a long time your smart watches your digital wearable tech um you know and and neuralink uh, uh, uh elon musk just uh, announced that neuralink his brain computer interface company uh just got its first scalp literally uh first human has been implanted with neuralink technology we get into that. We'll, we'll talk more about Neuralink, I think, in the ninth episode, uh, which is the dystopian present. But um, to answer your question, a huge component of the, gro- the Great Reset is to digitalize everything, to bring about this transhumanist, uh, I'm going to call it a hellscape, because what they are working on, Klaus Schwab's uh, visionary, a man named Yuval Noah Harari, basically says that it's going to create a whole new class of useless humans he he uses the term useless and he says what do we do with all these useless people and he talks about you know various ways to placate the masses with a com a combination of drugs and video games and you know metaverse or apple vision pro technology so that you're basically just living in the pod eating the bugs it sounds crazy this is what these guys are working towards um and uh, the the last point about artificial intelligence is it accomplishes so many goals of the control oligarchs, so many goals of people like Klaus Schwab or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos. And here's how we'll give you, you know, the spoiler up front and then we can dive into who Klaus Schwab is, how he came to run the world in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't think he's actually running the world. He's just kind of a front man or, you know, the, the, you know, the, the ringmaster of uh, much more insidious interests who fund him. But AI accomplishes First, it leads to universal basic income. And I think we've talked about this a little bit on previous episodes, but it, it bears repeating. Um, artificial intelligence, they tell us that it is going to displace a large number of jobs. We don't know how many jobs. Estimates vary from 20% to 40%. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, just uh, just about two weeks ago, uh, estimated that 60% of jobs were going to be affected by this artificial intelligence or AGI, artificial general intelligence automation revolution. Every single day I'm seeing articles. I just saw one the other day about how a janitor bot can sh- clean your clean, uh, you know, on an industrial scale, like let's say a stadium, a, you know, a, a sports stadium, clean all the bathrooms and the turn uh, the the uh, urinals and the toilets and everything in, you know, half the time as a human janitor and it costs pennies uh, of electricity for charging relative to the minimum wage. So janitors could be very well gone. I just saw a Tesla semi truck, you know, with, with uh, the, the automated uh, driving, the driverless cars, autos, uh, those that's 9 million jobs right there. It's one of the largest industries that Americans work in is just moving things from A to B, whether it's people or boxes. Um, once, once those, uh, driverless self-driving trucks and cars, uh, prove safer than humans, which won't be hard to do considering auto, uh, accidents and, uh, are among the most lethal, uh, type accidents out there. Half a million people die in auto accidents every year. As once the driverless cars kill less people than humans do, you'll hear them coming for your vehicles. And we just can't let humans drive. It's not safe. Uh, we got to have the driverless cars. That's 9 million jobs gone um, or more. And so you can see that like it's shaping up to be a massive uh, job killer. Now, there will be people who make, you know, uh, who are able to make jobs in art of, you know, using artificial intelligence and someone who's mastered the prompts for chat GPT or, or can use AI to write a better uh, movie script and, and all the screenwriters in Hollywood are pissed off about how their jobs are being taken. So some jobs will come out of it, but a lot of jobs are going to be affected and we don't know the number yet. Point is, this is going to lead to a chorus of demands for universal basic income. Adam Schiff from California just introduced legislation to uh, have a pilot program for UBI. In Europe, there's already a much more robust UBI system where everybody's getting checks. Once you get the checks, you're dependent, you're slave to those checks. And you can imagine how... Um, you know, if you're, if you're out of work and you don't have a job and you're, you know, struggling to put food on the table for your family, uh, you'll do just about anything to get, uh, food on the table for your starving children. So, 
Um, and you see videos all the time of people, you know, out of work or lost their jobs and they're tragic, tragic videos um, talking about how they can't make ends meet. Rent is too high. The cost of groceries is too high. All, you know, it's, it's amounting to a, a, a situation where people are going to be begging for these universal basic income checks. And to, so to my point that AI accomplishes so many goals of the control oligarchs of Klaus Schwab, what are you going to have to do to get UBI? You're going to need a digital ID. Um, and they, they say this. I mean, Sam Altman, the head of ChatGPT, says that you need a digital ID. He's got a pilot program for UBI. It's not a coincidence. The largest artificial intelligence company in the world is working on a UBI system that is based around digital ID. And to make it faster, because everybody's going to want their checks faster, right? Uh, you'll need a central bank digital currency. You just can't believe how efficient a CBDC is. You can get checks out to everybody in two seconds flat. And so you can see how this is shaping up to serve their agenda. They use crises for control. Um, and we've seen it play out you know, over the decades. And so uh, I hope that long-winded uh, response answers your question. Oh, yeah. Well, I've seen just on a personal uh, personal level how, um, how trauma uh, can affect me personally. And then you, you make this a, a global issue, say, with a, a pandemic, as a lot of us call it. Uh, and you create trauma on a, on a global scale. You really have people just begging for any resources, any resources. Then they, they bring out this savior-esque type of artificial intelligence uh to essentially uh help out or you know be their savior and that's my opinion um though going going back i believe um what i'm what i'm seeing with the the digitalization of everything the internet of things even uh, as the rand corporation calls it the internet of bodies or internet of humans is the digitalization of everything and even replacing paper documents everything like going paperless which i understand to a certain point <laughs> to a certain point but i see it in a, on a long term scale what happens when everything goes digital there remains a potential for history to be completely erased because we lack we would then lack paper documentation of the history that happened before well, you know, you're exactly right. And that is a that is a problem that not a lot of people key in on. It is huge, though. And this is why uh, it's critical to I mean, you know, I'm not telling you to go get a storage unit and be putting all your documents in there. But it is very uh, important to maintain physical records of important things. Shameless plug this book. Uh, you know, you don't know how long that Apple and Apple books or, or any book really um, important books you should absolutely and this is why books are so important is you should uh, keep them. Uh, because you never know how long I just, I mean, Jim Jordan, the, uh, uh, the congressman who's on, uh, oversight and other committees, weaponization committee, he just put out a tweet thread. Um, and I, and I retweeted it with some more details, but you, you should definitely check out Jim Jordan's tweet thread. He calls it the Amazon files. Um, this just came out yesterday. Uh, well, as of this recording, so this week, uh, where, he puts out this thread about how Amazon has removed books, both from its Kindle library and real physical books. And, and there's actually a book out there um, that I'm looking for that was removed from Amazon. It's called Who is My Neighbor? And it's a great book. I don't actually have it. I got the digital version, but uh, I would love the physical version because they have tried to vaporize this book. And so exactly like you say, Bobby... They are, they are going to, I mean, it's like, it's like Orwell said, it's like every statue has been removed. You see this happening all the time. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, our founding fathers. I mean, heck, they're even coming for Abraham Lincoln, who seems rather uncontroversial, you would think, to the woke mob. But um, nonetheless, they're tearing down the statues. They're renaming the streets to things like Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C. And every record has been erased. Every book has been removed. This is all from Orwell's 1984. It was not supposed to be uh, a how-to manual. It was supposed to be a warning. So um, maintain physical records, at least of the essential things. Um, and, you know, or, or at least your personal, you know, offline files. I mean, I, you know, I've got a personal hard drive. I keep it uh, air gapped most of the time for all of the essential documents that I don't want 
taken because they absolutely an AI will just give them uh, enormous powers to do it to to root you out to in digital ID you know they'll they'll put they'll put, they already have profiles built on you but they'll uh, they'll have much more robust functionality for identifying you isolating you vaporizing uh, your records I mean I know this sounds crazy don't get you know I'm not a uh, you know, it's, it sounds crazy, but I trust me, the sources are all there. I've got the receipts. They're doing it as we speak. I was, I was, um, well, speaking of trauma, uh, and you, you know, I am a man, but I, but I'll admit this. Uh, we moved a few times out when we were in California and there were, uh, one of the times that we, we moved uh, because paper paper is heavy and if you have to move a bunch you know um, you might you know we may want to narrow it down but I was just I was hoarding documents after documents after you know and and putting them in binders you know thank goodness for binders but there was there were so many that we literally could not move them all I, I stacked binders in multiple rows up to about three feet high onto a dolly and had to place them outside of the trash can it actually it actually brought me to tears i mean uh there there's a, a special connection that uh that we as our organic organisms have with uh with our record keeping and uh you know the pen and the paper uh the ink and the quill there's something quite sacred about that it seems as if these control oligarchs are attempting to take away all that was once sacred Oh, they absolutely are. And I, I know how you feel. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a data hoarder myself. Um, and, uh, you know, you, uh, I, I, I've got a scanner. It's not, I mean, we've got a, a, a copier. I mean, I think you can go, there's, there's probably places, I, you know, I'll look into it, but there's places where you could probably uh, get all your documents scanned on mass and get them put on a hard drive. I know you've got hard drives and all of that, but uh, I feel your pain because I've cleaned out files before. And even when I have the digital version, I hate getting, you know, clearing out a binder of, of important documents and notes, but uh, it can, it can stack up on you. So it, it, it kind of has to be done, but you, you main re maintain redundancies and uh, you know, you just gotta, you know, hope, hope that, uh, your hard drive doesn't get zapped by the EMP. I'm just kidding. Um, I agree. I'm always looking, anyway, out, always looking out for that. <laughs> yeah. Kimberly had something? No, I just wanted to make a parallel to um, the, the, when you mentioned they, how they called it useless humans. And that just reminded me of the whole, you know, COVID stuff with the non-essentials. It's like, it seems like they're using that and then everybody losing their jobs and then having to rely on the government. Right. It just seemed like that was like kind of the walk up to where they're going with the next stage of this. That's a good point. That's a good point. I was actually deemed a non-essential and it was uh it was a little heartbreaking, you know, I'd be, to be put into one of two classes to be non-essential. Though uh, like <laughs> what do you think? It was it was so it was so insulting and it was so like ludicrous too because um my wife she works for a uh uh, it's an online plant nursery and they sell beautiful ornamental plants and, uh, fruit trees. And, uh, I mean, her, uh, her boss, he's a buddy of mine is, I, I always tell people he's such a genius because he's actually found a way to sell dirt on Amazon for 20 bucks a bag. Awesome. Uh, and he, he slaps a nice label on it and calls it orchid, uh, organic orchid potting mix <laughs> and uh, he sells a gallon bag for 20 bucks or something. But point is she was deemed essential because agriculture workers, anybody working in the agriculture f field, uh, was, was called essential. And so her all, whole office is like, what the heck we're selling, you know, uh, you know, house plants to, uh, you know, home decorators, not like food to feed the masses. Um, nonetheless, uh, it, it was, it was an insult to anybody deemed non-essential and the, and, and actually these guys think we're all useless humans, to be honest. I mean, at, at best we're cattle that are supposed to serve them and deliver profits to them. Uh, but they don't care about any of us. And, and maybe this is a good time to, to launch into, where the uh, World Economic Forum came from and what Klaus Schwab's, what, it, what it's all really about, because it's not about saving the planet, obviously. They act like, you know, you just go to the World Economic Forum.org, it's W E Forum.org. Uh, they, you know, every single article is like how they're like saving the planet. They don't care about saving the planet. Um, 
what the World Economic Forum is really about, obviously, is control, but how and its population control. These guys are all Malthusian. They are all overpopulation freaks. I mean, you can find a few examples of people who are not. But by and large, you ask any member of the World Economic Forum, any keynote speaker, any Bill Gates, George Soros, uh, Klaus Schwab, I mean, even Dr. Jane Goodall, the gorillas lady, uh, Ted Turner, the head of, you know, founder of CNN, um, they all invariably believe that there are too many peasants on planet Earth. They think that we're uh, at 8 billion, headed for 9 billion, 10 billion, and uh, they want to make sure there are less of us, not less of them. You know, Ted Turner's got five or six kids. George Soros has got five kids. Even Bill Gates has got three kids. And if he was so uh, concerned with overpopulation, shouldn't he have no kids? Um, and so, I mean, if, you know, if you've got questions, we can start that. But I, I could also go on a nice long uh, monologue about how this thing got started by Malthusians and the Club of Rome and Rockefeller Foundation uh, eugenicists. Um, it's all it's all connected, and they're all still uh, calling the shots. Yeah, keep keep those thoughts. I just wanted to make one quick comment, and then I'll let you let you take off. You make some great points and stoke some uh, some thoughts that I've I've never thought about. Well, this this fourth industrial revolution that they're attempting to bring about, um, really saving. It's not about saving the planet to the World Economic Forum. If if it was about saving the planet, they would call themselves a World Ecological Forum, <laughs> or not economic. It's more about creating a new industrial revolution. So keeping the opinion uh, that, that 8 billion people, or that there are way too many people on the planet, really only benefits their idea or their agenda to bring about another industrial revolution because how can you how can you bring about more industry with so many people on the planet and it seems they're choosing industry over their fellow human beings yeah i mean the, yeah they're not about saving the planet i mean i we could we could spend the entire episode talking about the climate hypocrisy of these folks whether it is the private jets which is you know a kind of a cliche at this point and everybody talks about how they're flying around on private jets meanwhile during the lockdowns and the in the covid uh you know, pandemic uh, measures, all of us had to, down I never wanted to download Zoom. I don't want Zoom. I don't like meeting via Zoom. I like meeting in person um, and having personal uh, community with people. But nonetheless, they forced, uh, you know, nobody had ever heard of Zoom before uh, the pandemic. China owned Zoom. Um, and yet we were all forced to do our meetings via Zoom. Well, why can't they do their meetings via Zoom. If they care so much about the planet and carbon footprints and all of that, why do they all have to fly to Davos to get, to get you know, their, their uh, $700 an hour prostitutes, as has been reported, and there's a lot of drugs that go on in Davos. That's why, I mean, they'd, they'd rather have their prostitutes and their drugs and go skiing on beautiful mountains in the Swiss Alps. Um, and, and I love to ski, so, you know, I can't blame them for wanting to go skiing. Um, but, like, if they cared about the planet, have the World Economic Forum via Zoom lead by example. Of course, they won't do that. But there's so many other examples of hypocrisy. I mean, the the eating the bugs. I mean, that's real. The world's largest edible insect farm just went online, capable of producing a hundred metric tons. You can't even fathom how much that is, but it is a metric, a <laughs> hundred metric tons of bugs for edible human consumption. Uh, that just went online in France. Um, and they're pushing all of these uh, lab-grown meats and alternative proteins and fake milks. Why? Because cows are apparently so bad for the planet. Well, they're meanwhile eating, and I and I went and found the favorite uh, delicacies and, and foods of the control oligarchs. Bill Gates loves the juicy T-bone steak. Uh, uh, same with, uh, let's see, Jeff Bezos, he goes to uh, uh, Jose Andres, who's a world-famous chef. Uh, he's got a, a place in Las Vegas called Bazaar, uh, Bazaar Meats, which is $80 an ounce, which if you can't fathom that to have a eight ounce uh, filet, a relatively small filet, you're talking close to $500 um, or more, uh, you know, just the fanciest meats imaginable. Mark Zuckerberg just posted on, on, uh, uh, Instagram, how he's started at his Kauai estate in Hawaii. Um, the, the most finest, rarest, 
uh, Wagyu beef farm. So he's growing cattle, he's feeding his Wagyu, he's massaging them, he's feeding them uh, beer and macadamia nut uh, cow feed, which just sounds honestly delicious. Um, but uh, all of these guys, they're total hypocrites. So it's not about saving the planet. Uh, but the lab-grown meats, of course, have a larger ca ca carbon footprint just in the energy it costs to produce them than a cow does for the same amount of protein. So it's not about saving the planet. Uh, look at the electric vehicles and lithium-ion batteries. I mean, uh, a pipeline, an oil and gas pipeline, and of uh, you know the most abundant thing that grow that you know is produced naturally on planet Earth. I mean, we didn't invent oil; it just comes up out of the ground. Um, that that's relatively clean compared to an open pit strip mining operation using child labor in a lot of cases and, you know, uh, third world countries. Um, that's just the production of the lithium, not to mention the transportation and uh, what do you do with these lithium batteries when you're done with them? They produce toxic chemicals and poison the earth, the uh, wind turbines, those things are not recyclable. Uh, those are an ecological disaster. So on and on and on, uh, like, you know, th this isn't about saving the planet, of course. Uh, and then talking about um, whether the planet is even overpopulated to begin with, that has not been conclusively proven. For people who always say trust the science and trust the scientists, there is no evidence, there is no data that says that the planet is overpopulated Actually, scientists say that it could double or triple in population. Now, if you live in Manhattan and you've got, uh, you know, homeless people and illegal migrants defecating in your streets and, and strewing litter or what have you um, everywhere, I could see where you'd have, you know, you might think that the planet is overpopulated. That's because you live in New York City or Chicago or any other big city um, that is being mismanaged and run into the ground. But you live pretty much anywhere else in the country places like flyover country uh i'm in north florida uh we live in a pristine environment we've got the spring system in florida the aquifers they're totally clean endless fresh water um and if you've ever flown in an airplane pretty much anywhere in the world sure there's some deserts and there's some unlivable places and mountainous regions etc but it's pretty much wide open in fact uh there's been numerous studies that conclude that if people lived as densely as uh, those, the, you know, the citizens of New York City, Manhattan, or Chicago, uh, you could fit comfortably the entire global population, all bi 8 billion people on New Zealand, which is a small island relative to the size of, let's say, Australia. Certainly Australia, you wouldn't even have to live as densely as you do in Manhattan, or even Texas, you could fit the entire global population at, uh, you know, a, dense, a population density the same as people are currently living now. And what does that mean? That means the rest of planet Earth, the entire globe is wide open, whether that's for food production or whatever. Now, we don't all want to live like they do in New York City in, in crowded spaces like that. We like having a yard in our backyard gardens and all of that. But these elites, these coastal elites who they may live in places that seem overpopulated, but they want to change the, the, like everything for the rest of us who actually have a pretty nice existence with uh, backyard gardens and, and beautiful springs and aquifers. And I know you're in the Midwest and uh, what they call flyover country is actually a quite a beautiful place where we don't have uh, total crowding and overpopulation. So my point is overpopulation is a myth. It's always been a myth. And, but it's the myth upon which the World Economic Forum is founded. And they're doing huge amounts of harm based on this myth. Uh, perfectly said. Perfectly said. Uh, it just reminds me as a bad excuse. I, I don't know if they if they really believe that or not, or if it's just a bad excuse to push to push harder for uh, for smart for smart cities and the fourth industrial revolution. No, it's the latter. You're you're right to suspect that, Bobby. And, and go ahead in a second, Kimberly. But it's, I mean, it's crisis equals control. That's what you have to remember. Crisis, and, and it's you know, you feel it intuitively. You see it time and again. Every time there's a crisis, they leverage that crisis, whether it's a real crisis like hunger and famine and starvation. Those are real crises. Those are things that happen naturally. Even diseases historically have been real crises. But what we see is there's a whole lot of crises that are caused by these guys who benefit from these crises. Inflation would be a crisis. I mean, you go to the grocery store and everything's double the price it was two years ago. Inflation is 
a manufactured crisis. It is caused by the monetary policy. The climate crisis is not actually a crisis. In fact, don't take my word for it. Bill Gates just a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months ago just said he finally admitted it. And it's funny because it's like the talking, the memo didn't go out to everybody. They're still talking. I mean, just Davos just happened a couple of weeks ago. Vanessa Carey, John Carey's daughter, um, she's out there saying the climate crisis, the climate crisis, and they're all, they've changed it from climate change to climate crisis. That's not an accident. They did it because crisis, to your point earlier, Bobby, is uh, a way to scare you into accepting their uh, policy prescriptions. But Bill Gates, just a couple of months ago, I'll send you the link, he said, actually, the planet's not in danger. The planet, I believe his words are, quote, going to be just fine. And that's true. I mean, that's always been true. If you've ever seen the George Carlin bit, uh, the plan has been here a long time and it's going to be here long after we're gone. It's the people that are screwed. Um, you know, he uses more colorful language, but it's true. The planet is going to be just fine. I mean, volcanoes and tectonic shifts and the reversal of the magnetic poles and asteroids and all of these things that have happened to planet Earth. And we're supposed to believe that some plastic bags are going to kill the planet. It is uh, it is just absolute hubris on the part of these guys. And it's a, it's total ignorance on the part of the populace for actually buying this crap. I mean, you know, the, even using the numbers that they use on the uh, parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, it's 400 parts per million. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, 400 parts per million, if you have any idea how much that is, it's nothing. It is like a drop of cyanide in, you know, a thousand gallons of water. I mean, I don't know if that math checks out, but the point is, if you took a sip of like uh, you know a, a big tank of water with one tiny drop of cyanide, it's nothing. And then you actually look what they admit uh, the parts per million were before industrialization. It's like two hundred parts per million. So like we've barely doubled the parts per million. And it's I mean it's you know I'm you know I know I'm not talking to many scientists here, but the the bottom line here is is it's actually carbon and CO two is a naturally occurring. Uh, uh, element and uh, naturally occurring compound. Uh, trees breathe CO2. And when they talk about how CO2 is this greenhouse gas and it's going to kill the planet, just know you exhale CO2 every minute, every second of every day. And what that means is you are the carbon they want to reduce, not cars or not whatever. It's like they, it, they're coming for you. So they are making up a crisis. They're getting you to surrender uh, control out of fear of this crisis, so-called crisis. And actually, you know, to what I said just a moment ago, Bill Gates says it's not even a crisis. So, um, it, you know, it's all overblown. Uh, it's brilliant marketing. I mean, you can see people, you know, everyone, you know, you know all kinds of people. And, and I just want to say, you know, if I sound like a callous, like, you know, not conservationist, I'm a total conservationist. Nobody wants to live in a dirty environment. Nobody wants dirty water. Nobody wants dirty air. Um, I, you know, we've talked about uh, the, the situation at the nuclear sites in this country. That is atrocious. Those are crimes. The people who are responsible for these ecological disaster disasters need to be locked up. And I know that like we've looked into, you know, JP Morgan's funding of, uh, and this is a little inside baseball and you'll have to go listen to uh, Bobby's other reporting, but you know, JP Morgan backing the uh, USEC plants and, and all of the, these are control guard backed operations. So all of the biggest ecological disasters in human history are backed by the very people who want you to give up your entire way of life so that they can have more profits and power and control. Yeah, it's the it's the pattern of they create the problem so they can offer the solution and further harm those they claim to protect. Yeah, P problem reaction solution is so true. I talk about it in the book. It's uh, you know, it's 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 an effect and it's effective tactic because uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're on a scientific level. Uh, fear um, shuts off a certain portion portion of your brain, the logic part, uh, and and it makes you go into sort of. Uh, uh, like an animal instinct where you're going to preserve yourself. And, and how do you do that? Well, by listening to the, the supposed experts, the people who know more than you. So in order to save yourself, you got to listen to uh, the scientists, not, not you guys. I know you're, you're sharper than that. Um, but for the vast, vast majority of people, it's like you, you, you tell them something scary and it's like, what do I do? Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. 
speaking of being scared, um, I just I for some reason I just I can't get the the image of uh, of Bill Gates trying to ski a huge hill out of my head. I, I just I can't. It, let alone Klaus Schwab's not too far behind him. You know, skiing. I, I can't see. <laughs> Maybe they're on the bunny slopes or uh, on the tubing hill. I'm not sure. I don't. Uh, they don't. They don't let us see that part. I figured but, I'd uh, throw that out there, though. Um, yeah, no, well, now I've got images of Bill Gates. There's an image of Bill Gates that I can't get out of my head. He's in a pink cardigan, and he's just, like, throwing back his head and laughing. I'll send it to you. It's hilarious. But it's just, like, <laughs> the most diabolical guy. Uh, I mean, they're cartoonish. In a lot of ways, they are, like, cartoons. I mean, it's like, these are the guys who are dominating the world. It's like, you know, I wish they could do a little better. Um but uh, alas, these are the villains we're stuck with. Yeah, I mean, Klaus Schwab, the first time I heard him, I was thinking, who the heck is this guy? He, he really does sound very villainous. I, I don't know if it's a fake accent, if he actually is German, if he's I, – I don't know what he's thinking in his mind. Like what goes through his normal processing from the time he wakes up to the time he goes to bed. But, I mean, there's something just off about this, this Klaus Schwab guy. Yeah, well, and so, uh, you know, I don't want to run out of time here, so let me go ahead and tell you who the heck Klaus Schwab is. So he is German. Uh, he was born in Ravensburg, Germany. This was actually, uh, you know, during the uh, Nazi era, uh, was the ground zero for uh, forced sterilizations and eugenics testing. Um, now, Klaus Schwab, I think he was born in like the 1934 or 36 or so. So he was just a young lad when, uh, you know, during the Hitler uh, era. But uh, his father, Eugen Schwab, was uh, an engineer and he worked for a company called Escher Wies, uh, spelled Wies, uh, W-Y-S-S, Escher Wies. Um, and Escher Wies is a Swiss company with, a, with German branches. And this was a bad company. I mean, they still exist today. I don't want to get called for defamation. So they're all good now. But uh, back in the day, they were helping the Nazis build things like flamethrowers or uh, they were big into nuclear. They were helping the Nazis build a nuclear bomb. And so uh, Jürgen Schwab ran a plant in Ra uh, Ravensburg, Germany that used forced labor. It used, uh, you know, slave labor, essentially. Um, and uh, not a good company. And that's where it was. Uh, it was uh, Hitler named it a uh, a model Nazi company. It was one of the uh, top Nazi helpings wartime suppliers. And, uh, you know, these weapons that it would build were used against allied troops, Americans, British, etc. And so um, that's what that's where Klaus Schwab comes from. And uh, I don't I certainly don't uh, call him a Nazi or attribute any of the crimes of the Nazis or the crimes of the father do not pass on to the son. But uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, this is where Klaus Schwab came from. And what that means is that he was unable to. And I talk about this in the book. It, it's uh, it's a really interesting dynamic because uh, he grows up. He, he goes to uh, engineering school himself. He sort of becomes more of an academic. And um, <clears throat> when he uh, he goes off to Harvard, he ends up studying uh, under the tutelage of one Henry Kissinger. And uh, a lot of people know some things about Kissinger. Most people don't know all the bad things there are to know about Kiss Kissinger. But left, right, and center, a lot of people agree he was a pretty bad guy. Um, he became the Secretary of State. He worked in the Nixon administration. He's been among the most uh, influential diplomats of the 20th century and even into the 21st. And he, uh, he's, at, he's responsible for things like uh, bringing China into the new world order, getting the most favored nation status. He was a big advisor to American corporations as they offshored our jobs, shut down the factories in the United States, opened them in China because China's got cheap slave labor. Kissinger's not a good dude. He was Klaus Schwab's mentor. But what does that have to do with the Nazis? Well, uh, Henry Kissinger, he was a Jewish emigre. He, uh, was, you know, his family fled uh, Nazi Germany. They were, they actually grew up, uh, Henry Kissinger and Klaus Schwab, about a three hour drive from one another. I got, I've got this in the book, you know, the towns and, and whatnot. 
And so what does all of this mean? This means that uh, both of them grew up without a national identity that they could associate with. You know, you grow up in America, you're an American, you're proud to be an American, you sing the national anthem, and, uh, you know, you love things like baseball and apple pie, and, and, you, and you like free speech, and you like freedom to assemble, and, and freedom. You know, that's what it's like to grow up as an American. If you grow up as a Klaus Schwab, and uh, your father was a Nazi working for a national socialist model company, and Hitler praised your father's company. And, and now, obviously, that's a very bad thing. Uh, you can't be proud of that kind of thing. You don't have any pride, national pride. In fact, it's kind of drilled into Germans, especially after World War II, not to have a national identity. Nationalism is a scary thing. It's what led to Hitler. Uh, same thing for Henry Kissinger. And also had people like George Soros, who he uh, was a Hungarian Jew. He grew up uh, actually pretending not to be a Jew and he worked for the Nazis. This is all admitted. They call you an anti-Semite or whatever if you if you talk about George Soros' upbringing. But George Soros proudly admits in a 60 Minutes inter interview, so this is like a mainstream legacy media interview, Steve Croft asks uh, George Soros, you know, most people would have to go to the psychiatric couch after pretending to be a Nazi and uh, helping to dispossess your fellow Jews of their property. I mean, that was George Soros's job as a 14-year-old boy was to send his fellow Jews off to the death camps, but first take their jewelry, take their artwork and, and such and, and, and steal from his fellow Jews. And when, and when Steve Croft in 60 Minutes asked George Soros, uh, did, you, did this cause any problems? Most people would have to go see a shrink after such an experience. George Soros uh, you know, sociopath that he seems to be says, not at all. If it wasn't me doing it, someone else would be doing it. I sort of digress here. But the point is, is men like this, they grew up without a national identity. They had nothing, you know, no place to be proud. Words, quote, citizens of the world, end quote. And so that's how these guys really view themselves as I'm not a citizen of Germany. I don't have any pride in Germany per se, or Switzerland or Hungary, or even the United States where, uh, you know, some of them immigrated to. They are citizens of the world. And that is why they need to tear down national borders. They don't like a strong America. They like open borders. Uh, George Soros has his Open Society Institute. And if you look at a lot of the crises happening in this country, um, they like George, Klaus Schwab, George Soros, Henry Kissinger, who is a mentor to both guys. Uh, they don't like a strong America. They don't like strong borders. Again, George Soros has this Open Society Institute and foundation where they want to eliminate borders and eliminate nations and really transfer all of the power and control from individual nations, individual countries and peoples into international systems, citizens of the world, organizations like the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the IMF, all of these supranational organizations that they control. We don't have control there. You can't uh, vote in or out a Klaus Schwab as head of World Economic Forum. You can't vote in or out a Tedros of the head of the World Health Organization or any of the UN personalities or IMF personalities. You, we don't have a say. Um, and that's exactly the way they like it. And so that's sort of the point of all of these assaults, for, including the open borders and the, the floods of illegal migrants into this country. Uh, that is the point, is, is to weaken intern, uh, uh, individual national institutions, individual countries, and make them reliant on uh international organizations like the world economic forum and the world health organization. And so that like, that's kind of like where Klaus Schwab comes from, but getting into like the specifics. So he uh, studies under Henry Kissinger. He learns all about globalism. As I said, at the beginning of the interview, Henry Kissinger is the godfather of the new world organization. He's actually an agent of the Rockefeller foundation and the Rockefeller family. He was an advisor, senior uh, special projects advisor to the uh, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which we talked all about in uh, the, the first episode here with the Good Club. So he studies under Kissinger, which means he really gets the download from the uh, Rockefeller Foundation, which we talked about in episode one of this series. Um, and, and the Rockefellers are, are the you know godfathers of population control and eugenics and things like Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger. Um, 
a young Henry Kissinger studied under the Rockefellers. So that's that's the progression here is Rockefellers who did all the eugenics and the population control. They uh, enlist Henry Kissinger, Henry Kissinger before he becomes secretary of state and working in the Nixon administration and, and on from there. Before that, he is a professor at Harvard. At Harvard, he teaches a very young Klaus Schwab, you know, student age, graduate student age Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab leaves his uh, Harvard education from the godfather of the New World Order, Henry Kissinger, and he goes and sets up this thing called the European Management Symposium. Symposium. That is the precursor to the World Economic Forum. And that is, this is around 1971. So we're talking sort of ancient history here, 50 plus years ago. Uh, the European Management Symposium is affiliated with an organization called the Club of Rome. And the Club of Rome, uh, they put out a book called The Limits to Growth. This is like the original manifesto of overpopulation. And so this is really where they figure out that crises equal control. The limits to growth, I mean, it had all of these dire predictions of, you know, we're going to run out of resources and they we're going to starve and die. And, you know, it's just going to be miserable unless we cull the population, bring the population down. And so this is the, uh, the education that a very young Klaus Schwab got in, he, in his European Management Symposium, which became the World Economic Forum. It started with just $6,000 in seed money. I mean, that is nothing. Compare, compare that to today. Today, the World Economic Forum pulls in, in revenues, over $300 million. Uh, but back when Klaus Schwab started it, after studying under Henry Kissinger, it just cost $6,000 to throw the very first Davos event. Now it has grown from there. And you can see why, because it was the World Economic Forum in conjunction with the Club of Rome that discovered crises equal control. Um, and it's in, in, in that, and with that, that control comes cash. They get very rich from these things. And so uh, first was overpopulation, as I mentioned. Then they realized, I mean, you, you can imagine how telling the masses, telling the herds of, of sheeple that uh, there's too many of you, we got to get rid of some of you. It's not a very popular, it's not a popular message. It doesn't go over well when you tell people, stop having kids, stop having families. Now, they've been pretty effective at slowly brainwashing people into not wanting to have kids. Nonetheless, it's not a popular message. And so they realize, you know, what, well, what is, the, what is the bad thing about overpopulation? We run out of resources. So it becomes this kind of ecological thing. We're going to run out of resources. They eventually realize, though, running out of resources, that actually doesn't, it doesn't work. It, it's not true. Because why? Resources continue to get cheaper and cheaper. And there's a very famous wager because uh, between one of these Malthusian guys, his name's Paul Ehrlich. He wrote a book called The Population Bomb, which was doom and gloom. He was like Al Gore before there was Al Gore. Um, Paul Ehrlich made a, a bet with a gentleman with the last name Simon. It's the, the Ehrlich-Simon wager. And Simon was a, a free thinker and a logical guy who said, we're actually not running out of resources. We have more abundance than ever. Uh, I'll make a bet with you, Paul Ehrlich. If, if the prices of goods go up, that means basic supply and demand, we're running out of things. But if the prices of goods, and they picked four goods, copper, uh, wheat, you know, various commodities, if the prices go down in a decade, that means we're not running out of resources. And, and Ehrlich said, okay, you're on. That's a bet. Well, turns out Simon, the logical guy, won. The uh, doom and gloom overpopulation control guy, uh, Ehrlich, lost. And that's been true since. So eventually they realize, oh, we can't say we're running out of resources. Everything's getting cheaper and more abundant. So uh, that turns into uh, like like climate climate change not quite climate change it first starts as global cooling then it goes into global warming then it goes into uh the ozone layer is being depleted and every year they come with some new like crisis that uh we're supposed to be scared of and climate change was just the coup de gras because um you know if if uh, the climate change everything's climate change <laughs> Uh, if it rains, that's because of climate change. If it's too hot, it's because it's climate change. If it's too cold, it's because it's climate change. And so no matter what the weather does, climate change is to blame. And that's how they've kind of settled on this really perfect crisis because they just tell people, whatever you're experiencing today, that actually is a crisis. Um, so, so that's kind of where the World Economic Forum begins. And, and that's why you see climate change is this 
uh, perfect crisis that it keeps they keep adapting it and they use these models that uh, every now and then need to be rejiggered and updated and the data needs to be tweaked again. Um, and they never take any responsibility or apologize for their, their doom and gloom predictions. They just come up with a new one. I mean, I just saw Greta Thunberg, who's uh, sponsored by a lot of these control oligarchs. Uh, she had to delete a tweet because she said if by the year 2025, New York City is going to be underwater or what have you. Um, and they're and they're wrong, and they don't ever say, "Oh, sorry, I was wrong." Yes, you shouldn't trust me anymore. They just come up with a new, grander, scarier crisis to uh, to frighten us with. But I guess that brings us to the pandemic and the Great Reset. That's the perfect crisis because it was real. There is a virus. People got sick. You know, it was the flu, uh, more or less. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it was a very scary event. I mean, my, I myself who. You know, in the initial days of the pandemic, everybody was like, hey, what is this, going to kill me? Um, and you see all the, the trauma-based mind control messaging everywhere. You didn't know what to do. And until you yourself got the coronavirus, you were probably afraid of it. And then you got it and you're like, oh, this is like, you know, a, a bad cold mixed with maybe a hangover or something. And, you know, it, it was it was bad. You know, it's not, not, not ideal. You don't want it. But... Uh, it certainly wasn't something to give up all of our liberties for. Oh, no, no, I agree. I agree. I, I've certainly seen the mind control there at, uh, at the beginning. I knew something was afoot. Uh, I remember, though, I, I remember really the beginning of the reset for me personally that I took kind of personal was was when Boston Dynamics actually released their their four-legged spot robot which had evolved from the uh, the big dog from back in back in the day i believe 2005 department of defense darpa uh boston dynamics i believe was owned by google back then or something somewhere down that line but during during lockdowns i seen that uh, they were unleashing their spot robot to me it was it wasn't a coincidence. They had just been waiting for the right time to to unleash um, artificially intelligent machines into the public. Yeah, well, it certainly feels that way because, I mean, before the pandemic, you, you just kind of heard about AI and it was this sort of distant future. Um, you know, we'll, we'll know when we get to that sort of, uh, cyber dystopia where robots and, you know, Terminators and Skynet and, and you know, the matrix or whatever, you know, sci-fi movie you may have seen, like, we'll know when we get there. And a lot of people are still at that point where they don't realize that we are there. And that's why, uh, I can't wait for chapter nine for us to talk about that, which I call the, the dystopian present, because it's not a dystopian future. We are living in a dystopian present and it gets more dystopian by the day. Um, and it's not a coincidence, by the way, that a lot of the funders of, uh, things like event 201 and a lot of these pandemic exercises are, are big tech companies and, uh, like in Sam Altman and OpenAI and Bill Gates and Microsoft and, and Dustin, Dustin Moskovitz, who's open philanthropy, which is, he's a, he's a Facebook executive, um, and uh, Lucky Palmer, who's a former Facebook executive, is uh, he's make he's the creator of the Oculus, and the, like it, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense why there was this huge overlap between the big tech companies and the pandemic response. But it's starting to become more clear because all of a sudden, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, they flipped the Great Reset switch, turned the economies off and turned them back on again. And now we're supposed to rebuild and digitalize everything, build back better in a you know more uh, transhumanist way. And where and like what what is the point of all of this anyway? Like, do they really want to just be the lords of the robots? I get into this, and we'll get into it in the, in chapter nine, the dystopian present. But really, what this is about is these are all godless. Uh, you know, uh, you've all know Harari. Just go look at his comments on religion. He like scoffs at it and laughs at it. It's a totally ridiculous fairy tale and all of this stuff. These are godless. Uh, atheists uh, uh george i mean if anything they have god complexes themselves they fancy themselves god that's a direct quote uh from george soros he says he carries messianic fantasies and he believes that he is a god um because he's been able to live that out um but but uh you know they, they, what the transhumanism is all about is living forever there the one thing that unites everybody is we're all going to die 
Um, but the control oligarchs and the Klaus Schwabs of the world and the Yuval Noah Hararis of the world and the Mark Zuckerbergs and even Elon Musks of the world, they don't want to die. They want to live forever. And so they believe that they will be able to merge man with machine and upload their consciousness and download it into an avatar or a new, uh, new, you know, lab grown body or however they want to do it, whether it's brains in a vat or, uh, avatars or whatever it may be. They truly believe that they will be able to achieve that in this lifetime. I'm skeptical, but nonetheless, they are just hurtling us into oblivion, full speed ahead, no time to take uh, stock of the risks and, and whether this is good for humanity or not. Personally, I think we sort of peaked when you could uh, have a uh, have a meal delivered to your door uh, in less than an hour and have your groceries delivered to your door and uh, be anywhere in the world in less than a day. I mean, it's like we're, we're doing pretty well. I don't know what we need all of this transhumanism stuff for. I don't know. Like, like is it really an existence we want to have where we're, uh, you know, just plugged in and in, in, in living in your uh, dark living room and, and commuting with communing with friends? Uh, you know, via the, the Neuralink, I, I don't, I, I'm not, uh, in favor of it, but these guys are, they're, they, they're very happy about it. And Apple vision pro is going to be a huge leap in that direction. Uh, mainly because you can see, and as you're not wearing this bulky headset, uh, like the Oculus, but you know, people kind of have scoffed at the idea of virtual reality and augmented reality. It's going to be just like zoom. You didn't want to download zoom, but all of a sudden, everybody else has it. And now all of a sudden, you got to uh, go to a work meeting using the headset. And next thing you know, it's going to be widely adopted. And, and, and if the economy tanks and, uh, you know, everything's pretty miserable anyway, you might find it's preferable to live in the uh, metaverse or whatever, uh, you know, Web3 world they've built for you. Um, but uh, that's why we've got to resist this. We've got to spread the word. Um, you find that uh, people... More and more are waking up and finding that this this uh, dystopian present is not preferable to real life. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a meme and go go touch grass. But seriously, go touch grass. It's 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 better than digital grass. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, the, really with the transhumanist agenda with them wanting to live forever. I I completely agree with you that I believe they. They are, are godless. You know, they've admitted that they're godless, and they're they're scared to they're scared to die. Um, I mean, this really it's kind of it is kind of like a like a new version of how we would perceive vamp vampires or you know the immortal who live forever. I mean, is it just ironic that they want to live forever in this like vampire 2.0 or techno vampiric body? I'm not sure, but I think we need to keep that on our mind. And if they truly are um, a new version of uh, the old uh, vampire concept, then, well, maybe we need more vampire slayers. But uh, I think it's a little dangerous for me to, to say that, but I, I said it anyways. Metaphorically, I totally agree with you, Bobby. <laughs> right, that's what I mean. I don't mean, you know, get a a sword and go go slay these guys. I mean, um, yeah. Anyways, uh, Seamus Bruner, uh, Kimberly, you have anything else to say before we head off of here? Because I believe we we have offered some good solutions to the problems and exposed a lot here. Yeah, I believe that they don't want to die because they're going to have to be accountable for what they've done, and they don't want to mm -hmm. be accountable. And therefore, they just want to, you know, live forever and not have to actually face what they've done. And, you know, I, that they're denying God and, and claiming that they think that they have the right to act as God is atrocious. Completely agree. That's exactly what it is, Kimberly. They want to remain unaccountable. That is why they want to subvert our national sovereignty, transfer our sovereignty to international organizations where uh, led by unelected bureaucrats. All of these guys are unelected. And what that means is they're unaccountable. So they love being unaccountable. They fear being held to account uh, in this life or the next. And that's why they don't want it to end. So uh, 
That's a great point. I can't wait for the next episode where we can uh, talk about uh, both the power grab, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll set aside some more time for uh, solutions because I know this is heavy stuff. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So to all the listeners, uh, this is a call to actions podcast number 67. Humbly been officially podcasting for about a year and a half, maybe two. Uh, this is episode number three. And the third chapter of Seamus Bruner's new book, Controligarchs, Exposing the Billionaire Class, Their Secret Deals, and the Globalist Plot to Dominate Your Life. Chapter 3, The Great Reset. Again, uh, congratulations on your promotion to Vice President at Government Accountability Institute, Seamus. It's been an honor to have you on, and we look forward to having you again. Well, thank you so much, Bobby and Kimberly. It's always a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to the next one. God bless you both for your work. Amen, brother. God bless you. God bless you, Seamus. We'll talk soon. All right. Talk soon. All right. Bye.